Hello, and welcome to episode five of that 60s recording podcast. Um, number five. How do we get to number five so quickly? That's crazy. Um, my name is Joe Montague, and I am your host. Um, today, we're chatting to uh, a producer, a mixer, mix engineer, um, musician, um, an all-round absolutely lovely chap uh, called Clay Blair. Um, and you'll find out um, Clay runs a, a very cool recording studio in Hollywood. Um, we talk more about that in the intro. Um, some very cool stuff was done there, and he's doing um, he's doing some very cool stuff there as well. Um, so uh, we'll get... I was going to say we'll get straight into it, but I always say we'll get straight in and then don't get straight in. Something I very quickly want to address uh, before we do go straight in is the next few weeks, not next uh, episode actually, but the next few episodes uh, after that. Um, and in this episode, there is a little bit of this. There is a, a heavy weighting towards drums, um, which... I'm inclined to apologise for, but at the same time, that's what I know best. So I don't want to apologise for it, because if there was ever going to be any interesting listening, it would be about drums. Um, and from my experience of chatting with uh, musicians and writers, which I think that probably a lot of you guys are, um, they're nearly always interested in talking about drums. Um, I might be wrong in which case I do apologise, but I think you'll find the conversations over the next few episodes pretty interesting. Um, they're not about drum nerdery, don't worry, although there is a bit of drum nerdery in this one, actually. Um, but anyway, one final thing I should mention is um, this was recorded over Skype at Clay's um, home in uh, LA, and uh, the signal does drop in and out a little bit. I've tidied it up so it's it's easy to listen to. And at one point, Clay moves into a different room, so the sound quality does change. Um, so just please bear that in mind while you're listening. Here we go. So we are going to go straight in, and I hope you enjoy this uh, wide-ranging conversation. And it is wide-ranging, and he is a font of knowledge. You will get so much information from this. Um, so get your pen and papers ready. Um, here he is, Clay Blair. Okay, so today we're joined by Clay Blair uh, from Boulevard Recording, and uh, Clay is a, a mixer, a producer, and a musician. I've learned from introducing people that calling somebody one of those things only is is bad. So you got to call them all three because that's that's what everybody is. Everyone's just a musician, aren't they? We just call them entrepreneurs because we do so many different things. To survive. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I mean, yes, now I'm a podcaster. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. Um, so uh, one of the cool things uh, about uh, the, the Boulevard recording that Clay has is uh, it's the old producer's workshop. Now, I'm going to hold my hands up and be honest. I stumbled across some videos um, through uh, my sort of Beatles research of you uh, talking about your studio and some of the recreations that you've done, which we could talk about a little bit later. Um, but I hadn't heard of the producer's workshop before um, until about a year or 18 months or so ago. But it's a pretty cool place where um, the wall was, was the, it was recorded there, not just mixed there, it was all recorded there. Well, so they started the, the wall in, in England and, and they worked in France as well. And they kind of got the basic tracks and then Bob Ezrin produced the record and they camped out at my studio for three months. And so they did 
Pretty much everything but the drums. And actually, one of the um, songs they did drums with Jeff Beccaro called Mother. And they did that because Nick Mason, their drummer, uh, and Roger Waters had a falling out. And so Nick Mason stayed back in England. And so they hired a, one of the best L.A. Drum, LA session drummers in the world, you know, Jeff Beccaro, to play on Mother. And that was done in my room. But all the... As far as I know, all the solos, the vocals, the and everything pretty much but the basic drum tracks, um, except for Mother, were done in my room. And then they were simultaneously mixing in the room next door, which is used to be Producers 2, which was the mix room, but it's no longer there. Um, but yeah, that Bob Ezrin um, kind of had been working out of my room for a while and... Um, you know, he'd done a couple other records there. He did a Alice Cooper record there called uh, uh, Lace and Whiskey and um, uh, I think a Roberta Flack record as well. And they just kind of camped out there. And that's kind of and that was late. You know, producers came about in 72 or 71 and that was in 79. Um, you know, and the studio had been around since 67 it was called continental before that um so it was a recording it's been a recording studio for you know over 50 years um and it's gone through different names after the producers it was privately owned and then um in like 91 or 92 it was purchased by epitaph um uh, brett gerwitz and they called it west beach recorders and if you're a fan of 90s pop punk and you have any records that epitaph put out there's a really good chance that they were recorded in my room um the very first blink 182 album uh the first couple offspring rec records rancid bad religion um all kinds of albums were done in there so and then i took it over in 2010 2009 ish and uh been there almost 10 years Wow, I didn't know about the Offspring albums and uh, Blink One Eight Two stuff. I was I was big into that when I was a teenager, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, how did uh, it come to you then? Um, I was looking for a mix room. I wasn't really planning on opening a recording studio. I I had been doing mix work in North Carolina, where I'm originally from, and it was mix work from some a group of LA musicians and um I decided to leave where I was from and move here and I was just looking for a place to mix really uh you know because you could always go to other studios LA has so many studios um to record and so I didn't really plan on opening a studio but it kind of just happened that way and you know I went to look at this room that was advertised as a recording studio and uh it turned out to be my room and um it was just uh it was so incredible i didn't know what it was i didn't know the history of it but i've been in enough studios to know the the treatment the architecture even the smell i knew like okay this is a very old room and if I don't sign a lease on this, somebody else is going to do it. And I'm going to hate myself for the rest of my life that I didn't, you know, sign a lease for <laughs> and have this room. So, uh, yeah, I found it on an ad online, actually. That's in 
incredible <laughs> to think that, that something of that stature was just there on an ad. Um, well, it was left in very dire disrepair, and it took me about six months to actually get it into shape. And the whole the whole studio had to be rewired. Um, we had to retreat um, a lot of uh, the recording not not the recording area, but the the whole control room had to be retreated. But it was it was like old commercial carpet from top from floor to ceiling and it was all mildewed and molded out and so we had to replace it and i actually found some of the engineers that worked there back in the 60s like bill well bill schnee worked there in the 70s but there's a couple guys this guy larry brown and um they were telling me what was in that control room that made it sound so great in the 60s and it was this armstrong single drill uh random hole uh studio tile which they still made so we redid the entire control room to basically mirror what it was in the 60s, and we've stuck with it uh, with a little treatment here and there, but it, it sounds so much better than commercial carpet from floor to ceiling. <laughs> I can imagine. That's pretty um, a really commendable thing. Did you deliberately... I mean, presumably you did just set an intention of, I'm going to make this like it was. Yeah, Kind of, yeah. I mean, I kind, I, I liked the way the room sounded, and actually, we tore some treatment out that was in the in the actual recording, the live room, that was uh, water damaged, and we intended to put it back up, but I actually liked the way it sounded better, so we it still left off, and we have this wall that is in the far side of the room where the control room glass is. And it looks like, you know, it looks like somebody ripped off carpet off. It looks pretty rough, but it sounds great. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of got to know everybody that was living that worked there pretty much. I researched, I went looking on, you know, uh, discogs and going through, you know, tens of, ten you know, hours, days worth of hours. I've researched um what records were done there who worked there and most of the guys that are uh, still around i i'm in contact with and so you know i wanted i i wouldn't say i wanted their blessing because it wasn't their studio they worked there but i took the information that they gave me and um you know basically when epitaph took the studio um they pretty much only cut Epitaph records there. So that studio for a good 20 years was completely cut off to outside music. So when they closed the studio, the the reason they closed is because they didn't really have any contacts in any other genre of music. And when pop punk kind of died off a little bit, they didn't have any work. And that's when they gutted the studio. And, and I, I took it about a year after that. So what I did was I, you know, I I brought the studio back that kind of people didn't even realize was even there because Epitaph had had it. And most people hadn't worked in there because it wasn't really uh, a studio that people would just go to like it should be, like it is now. Like it's a, it's a, you know, it's an old room in Hollywood and it's commercial and anybody can come to it. Um, and so we are, um, we're really proud of that. So that's um 
you know, well, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to reopen. We've been sitting here like we were talking earlier for, for you're five weeks in. I'm about six weeks in. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. What was the um, the response of the guys that had worked there when you approached them and said that you were looking to renovate it? Oh, some of them laughed. I mean, you know, like it's, <laughs> you know, they they knew what what a pain they, in the ass it would be to do. But um, I'd learned lots of stories and. Uh, you know, there was, uh, and that's one of my favorite things about it is stories. Like, occasionally I'll be doing a session, and and there's a uh, a musician that's come come in that, you know, maybe I haven't worked with before, and he'll he'll be like, "What what was the studio called? Oh, it was called Producers Workshop. Oh, Producers Workshop. Well, I did this here, and blah blah blah, and you know, like this bass player Lee Sklar came in, and he's like, "Man, we he." him and i did a record with him and um russ conkle they were uh the rhythm section for james taylor for so many years and um <laughs> it was them and wadi Wattel, uh who you know wrote werewolf of london who was you know uh very one of the most incredible guitar players around and um and and he he was saying russ i think we were in here and they called down to say Elvis had died and and he said because you know we knew all his his band all his crew like it, they were they'd all and they'd all lost their job you know and he was just all the time all the time I get guys oh my god I cut this in here and um with that person and oh I, you know the Jackson 5 were in here like I heard that a couple of years ago and it blew my mind and um so mostly stories from the guys that worked there but they were glad that I think at least I felt they were glad, you know, it it would never be producers workshop again because um, what producers workshop was known for was a very clean sound and a very, uh, uh, recording setup. They had taken transformers out of almost everything, even some of the microphones, and it was a very, very clean sounding room and that's why steely dan loved it as well they did a lot of asia there and gaucho as well um and that's not what it is now i mean the room's the same but i i love transformers i love tape machines with transformers and you know that's not what's that's not that was a fad in this in the late 70s um when audiophile recording got so sterile and that's why some of those records sound so sterile of that period um but you know now i think i think the room's better than ever in my opinion because we've got more instruments and more gear that was than was ever in that room and um it's a really fun place to work there's so i mean if if you didn't bring it i probably have it somewhere like i i just it's a producer's room. There's a lot of, you know, it's a kind of place you, we got a couple pianos. I mean, you can, you can leave, you can fly in and not have to worry about bringing much of anything and do a record. I had a look at the gear list on the website and you've got, I mean, it was it two slingerling kick drums, a couple of Ludwig kits. I mean, I'm just talking about drums cause I'm a drummer, but then you've got guitars and basses and, organs and every effects pedal you can um, possibly imagine for guitars there is you uh, not not to mention like obviously this 
the uh, um, a load of studio gear. But yeah, there's insane the amount of stuff you've got. Yeah, we got twenty snares or something, and you know six or seven kicks and four or five full kits as well. So yeah, we got drums for days and lots of symbol. I don't really let people use my symbols because they break. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of old stuff, so I. But yeah, we have a lot of drums. It's if you need, if you're going for something, we probably have it. You know, there's 26, 20, couple 24s and 22s, a bunch of 20 inch kicks. We have a bunch of different of those, and all vintage. I don't think I think the newest thing we have are a couple of like um, remade snares, like a Black Beauty and that kind of thing. But every pretty much all the kits are vintage. I think there's something about, vin- I mean, I'm the same. I I have a uh, three three kits that are the ones I use fairly regularly, which is a um, early seventies um, super classic, and then a sixty four Beverly. I don't know if you guys get Beverly drums over there. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, and then um, I think it's called a D seven one seven, which is the Phil Collins in the air tonight. Um, you know uh concert toms thing and i think there's something about it's just like a warmth and a a thuddiness that you get with that with vintage drums i think it must be the same as with violins and um string instruments where the wood settles down a little bit and um i can't quite put my finger on it but even you know uh kits modern kits that are built to sound like old kits don't quite have it there's just something there that that they have yeah, yeah, it's new wood. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's it's yeah, I like the I mean, those were new kits they were using on those records that we love, but I, you know, I like I like the way my I I have my I have my main kit that I use the most is a 59 Ludwig, you know, and that's it and that's mahogany. So it's warmer than than the popular maple stuff they started making in the 60s. And and I have a later, I have like a 67 little kit, like the downbeat, and that's poplar maple, and it's punchy, and it's great. But mm-hmm. I really love my mahogany kit. Like, that's, that's a, it's, it is really warm, you know. I'd be really curious to hear that, actually. Has it got the transition badges on it? This is getting really nerdy. Got the blue Ludwig, yeah, emblem. Very nice. Um I have to steer away from drum nerdery because I'll, <laughs> I'll just talk about this. Oh, yeah. I love it. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit about Beatles. I've seen a video of you on YouTube as a child. I'm, I'm guessing playing playing uh, Lennon's part in Stan Sawyer standing there with a Beatles show. <laughs> yeah, I was like 15 or 14. Yeah, yeah, that was 1964. The tribute, which was. You know, when I was growing up, they were the greatest band you could see that, do, that did the Beatles. And um, they did early Beatles. They do two co- a costume change. They do, you know, Ed Sullivan, and then they do, like, a Shea Stadium set, and it was incredible. No no keyboards or, or you know, weird, just nothing. It was just them playing through amps and singing, and it was incredible. And they're still one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still friends with them even now. Like Mark Benson, who was the guy whose guitar was playing, he handmade those guitars, those Rickenbackers he made in the 80s himself. Wow. Because when they started doing it, um, they 
didn't make those. Rickenbacker didn't make those guitars, and the only way you could get one like that was to find an original. And so he he ended up just making his own, and still plays them. Um, but yeah, I had a Beatles band when I was uh, 15 or you know so, and we played the Cavern Club in Liverpool when I was 17 or eight, uh, 17. Oh wow! For, yeah, for like three nights. Um, I gotta find video of that and put it up. I don't know where it is, but I have video of that somewhere. That's cool. How did that come about? As a like seventeen-year-old, how do you presumably you like you must have been a dream to want to play at the Cavern Club, and then you did it three nights. How did that happen? Um, well, luckily our parents were really into what we were doing, and we um we were playing. I mean, we, we were making serious money. Like that's kind of how I started getting recording equipment was going through and making like we'd make like two or three grand a night as high school kids because we were playing parties for like doctors and stuff. So, um, you know, Christmas parties and whatever um, retirement parties, traveling around the south and really playing gigs. So um, and so we. One of the, the the drummer's dad was kind of managing us, and he was like, I'm just going to email the Cavern Club and send them your CD. And he did, and they booked us. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance, so we're going to do it. And so we did, and uh, yeah, it was incredible. It's a cool place. I, I play there fairly regularly, and uh, I love it. It's one of uh, the show that I, I play in is um, we mainly do theaters, and you know like people sat down and it's a proper theater show but when you go and play the cavern it's just guys and girls sat watching you or just stood watching you it's like a proper club um and uh it beetle gig there yeah yeah so they have a resident band that plays um fridays and saturday nights um called the cavern club beatles oh Um, yeah yeah so they're in the back room um so you pay a you pay like a surcharge to go in the back room um, and watch that show. But then in the front room, there is uh, they have acts on from 11 o'clock in the morning all the way through to like two in two or three in the morning um, wow. every day. And it's rammed from 11 o'clock every day. It's rammed. Wow. Yeah. We yeah. were, in, we were in the, you know, the, the, the small, like the, the proper, the Beatles room. And that was, yeah, it was incredible, uh, and it was packed. And uh, I think one of the guys in the Cavern Beatles, I mean, the lineup's probably changed from now, but he, I remember we, I think they maybe let us borrow an amp or two. They were really nice, and, um, you know, we got drunk with the George, I remember. <laughs> yeah, we were like 17, so we were kids in a candy store because we didn't get carded to drink alcohol. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine it was a uh, pretty relaxed. We were there oh, with a friend of ours too. That that had, he was an old rock star friend of ours in North Carolina, and he um, he was in a band called Hustler, which was from I think Steve was from Liverpool, but they were they were produced by Roy Thomas Baker, and they toured with Queen, and oh, wow. so he um, he we he we played in a little town outside of my hometown. And he was doing like Elton John karaoke, like himself, like in this redneck town, like he used to be a rock star. 
and he kind of took a liking to our band and and you know kind of came on board and we we all he helped you know he ran sound for us and um he's an incredible guy and you know he was one of the first people i ever met that had actually kind of made it and had recorded with legends i mean like roy thomas baker and and toured with queen and um and so he was there as well so he we were out getting drunk with this like you know you know 60 something year old rock star um <laughs> telling us telling us not to uh not to look at the skinheads like we didn't know what we were doing like because you know it turns out liverpool is not the safest place like it's kind of a rough town <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah, dude, that's definitely right. What was it? I've lost my trail of thought now. I can't remember what was going to. Oh, that's it. So I was going to. Um, one of the things I love about Beatles World, I, I like Beatles tribute is. Uh, before I got into it, I always had it in my mind that it would just be like the coolest thing to have to learn a hundred Beatles songs note for note. You know, that must be like doing, I don't know, uh, like doing a degree in in learning Beatles music. And if you were like a seventeen-year-old, having learnt that, what like that's an incredible in- education for you to have had as a musician. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I well, the crazy thing is, I taught my whole band how to play all their parts too. <laughs> wow. If you could, if you went and found them, they'd tell you that. I mean, they did some. They definitely did some homework, but um, we'd rehearse like three days a week for two, a couple hours at least, and you know, I. I would, I taught, I did teach them how to play almost all the parts. I mean, they could play instruments, but I taught them like, no, you know, this is the guitar part on She Loves You or, you know, I want to hold your hand, that kind of thing. Like, you know, the George part or the Paul part and, you know, the drum parts as well. So, yeah, I was kind of a dork, I guess. Uh, (laughs) But um, I, you know, it was fun. It was, we saw the reaction that we had you know we played we had this festival in my hometown i'm from Asheville, north carolina it's in the mountains and it was called bell share and it was kind of the street festival that had been happening for years and you know they'd see a i think they'd see a million people or so come through it in a weekend like it was a very people drive from all over uh, the south to come to this because they'd have really big acts playing you know and um so we played Bell share one year for I mean going downtown where you grow up and you pack the a, a couple blocks worth of people like we could see the red lights how many people were there um, thousands and so it was pretty uh, that was a really that's a, one of the best feelings I've ever had and that that kind of that pushed me into gear of like wanting to play music and i've always had been recording music um ever since i was 12 or 13 like you know we had like cassettes and i would dub off cassettes and record stuff all the time so um but yeah i mean that that's and then i figured out like what it was like to to tour the country with your own band that doesn't play isn't playing beatles covers and how hard that is and how much money you don't make doing that. So I kind of said, screw this, man. I'm I'm not bad at recording. Like, I'm, I'm going to look, I'm going to get more into it and focus on that. 
Was your early, so around sort of maybe 16, 17, and you were moving towards um, taking recording more seriously, was it, was what you were, what you were recording informed by Beatles recording techniques um, at that time? Well, I didn't really know. I kind of knew what they were doing at that age. I mean, I, I had seen just pictures, but I didn't know what, what we know now. And there wasn't really any, um, there wasn't a great wealth of information then to, to make it happen either. So I just knew like, well, they put two a, a, a mic over the drums and a mic on the kick in the early days. That's all I really knew. And so that's how I recorded stuff. And then I, you know, I didn't know the details of it, but I really, what I learned to do was to emulate the sounds, the guitar sounds, the drum sounds. And, um, I would, I got pretty good at that. I mean, I was recording, I was doing recording Beatles songs, even at like four, 13, 14, 15 years old. So, you know, it kind of taught me how to record in a way, uh, learning those songs. Um, so I guess I, I may have mentioned this already in the intro, but you've um, you've put a couple of videos up online um, of recreating Beatles songs. Um, the most recent ones being uh, the medley from the second half of Abbey Road. Um, but there was a couple that you did before. Um, so they're for uh, another YouTube uh, a YouTube company called Produce Like a Pro. So there was one you've done come together. And um, is there one more that you've done? Uh, well, on my channel, I did From Me To You. We did the drums. That's right. I, I have watched that. And then I I did bass. Did I, I think I did a Sgt. Pepper's bass. I can't remember. I think I did. Um, but yeah, I've re God, I've reproduced a bunch of them. I'm, you know, there, uh, there's, we're going to do a Sgt. Pepper's video later this year, which will be cool with the drums. We might do it with Warren, but it's similarly so much of the same stuff i think i'm probably going to do it on my channel but we'll see um and uh yeah i've kind of got a series coming out on my channel with all eras so before this happened i was halfway through a guitar video i was doing the early beetle guitar sounds um you know and we're gonna do that for the mid period as well with like the vox ac100s and um we're gonna do the mid period like rubber soul drums, and then we're gonna do the Sergeant Pepper's drums. Um, White album is very much the same. The drums are they stay the same pretty much from late Revolver until Abbey Road. They don't really differ that much, but we'll we'll still revisit them because there's certain things on certain songs that are pretty uh, unique drum wise. Like uh, uh, you know, like the drum sound on Helter Skelter is pretty unique and. So we'll probably pick songs like that that have a very unique sound on those records and and uh, kind of recreate that kind of thing and, and see what happens. I think it's a really cool thing you're doing just even for uh, to have a record of that stuff. Um, and there's not many people who have the gear that you've got and the, uh, the, the knowledge and the... Uh, the love for it to want to put it together. Um, I mean, I, I love absolutely loved watching it and, um, Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's just really, it's, it's a really cool thing to do and it's a really cool thing to watch you doing. (laughs) It's fun. It's kind of, um, 
you know, like my job is to make records. So we make albums, like I make albums, I record them, I mix them. Um, that's my job and I love it. And, um, that I love playing music out. I love playing with people. I love being in a band even, but I don't have time to do it anymore. Um, especially with a kid, but, but even before that, with my work schedule, um, recording, it's a lot of work. So that the, the, the Beatles thing is kind of like my, my chi, like I, I, I go do that and I, I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it. And, um, uh, and I will always enjoy it. So it's kind of like the thing that I'll always go back to because it's kind of where I'm rooted as far as how, I learned how to sing, how I learned how to play guitar, everything, basically. I mean, I, I've been taking, I took guitar lessons from age six to like 11 or 12. And then after that, the Beatles took over. So, <laughs> yeah. And I learned well, how to play everything. You know, I would just sit down with my headphones and my disc man, you know, would it, wouldn't skip um, and, and play through Beatle records on the drums and figure out the roles and everything and and I, it still makes me excited you know it's kind of um it's always that's always been an exciting part of music to me is is the beatles and it and uh you know those songs make me so happy and make so many other people so happy and um and the recordings are really cool and it's not just you know i wish there was more information on like the stones because some of those recordings are really cool as well, but um, there's not a whole lot of info uh, on the recording. And also, they weren't doing groundbreaking things with the Stones like the Beatles were. They're, they're, they're just uh, not nothing against them, but the Stones like to move around a lot, and that was cool. They record in America, or they'd record at this studio and that studio. They were kind of, and the Beatles wanted to do that as well, well you know but they somehow ended up always staying in, in London to record uh, and either being at Abbey Road or Trident. But because they developed such a unique with that, the engineers at Abbey Road, that they were able to push the envelope. And, um, you know, so many things from that era, phaser and, and any of that stuff. So, and the drum sound, like that's a, that mid-period drum sound is something that people die for now. Like it's the, um, the Fairchild thing and, you know, bands like Tame Impala that, you know, that's like the number one thing I get. How do you get Tame Impala drums? Uh, well, it's not that much different from Ringo drums, but, you know, I'm probably going to actually do that. I'm going to do a Tame Impala drum video because I've actually, um, I've sorted that drum sound out as well. And I get calls a lot to just do it and I do it and send it you know, play it for play on record. Like as long as it's something simple and nothing more complicated than the, the than Kevin from Tame and Paula would play, I'll play on it. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I get sent Tame and Paula tracks as references often. Um, they 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 do have a great drum sound. And uh, I was going to say one of the cool things about about Beatles stuff is you can see them progressing through their instruments as their career progresses too. And, you know, as a, somebody, you know, learning an instrument, um, you know, you can start off playing some quite simple early songs and then 
progress through their career and get into some really quite complicated, um, whether it was intentional or not, but complicated harmony and voicings and um, drum-wise, there's all sorts of stuff happening um, in, in later on. And it's a, they're a quite a good band to study in terms of uh, you know, their, their musical progress. Yeah, I, I didn't know that And Your Bird Can Sing was two guitars, so I learned how to play it on one guitar, which is a really hard <laughs> guitar when I was seven, 16 or 17. And wow. we play it live, too. So, you know, that was that's a pretty cool, that kind of thing. And But, yeah, I mean, that, that you know, that's the other thing. That's like a, I always tell people, you know, I, get, I occasionally get out music lessons, and I just, I'm kind of like, well, how long have you been playing guitar? You want to play lead guitar? Okay, go learn the guitar solo on Old Brown Shoe. That's a really good solo. <laughs> <laughs> That's not like the uh, typical solo to learn. Like, you know, people are wanting to like, learn how to be a sweet child of mine. Like, I, I could give a rat's ass about learning how to play <laughs> that. But, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm, I can remember learning that when I was 14 or 15. <laughs> um, but you, you, Let's delve into a little bit of um, if this might be too nerdy. Uh, I've got a couple of questions from so the most recent course that you've just released, um, which I've been watching today in preparation for this, was um, you recreated the medley from uh, the B side of the Abbey Road LP. So it's Sun King, Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, and uh, she came in through the bathroom window. Um, really cool to watch and uh your attention to details pretty incredible and um obviously the playing on it's great uh i have a I have a couple of quite nerdy questions that i i wonder if you could elaborate on so i'm re- i'm interested in with drum wise uh so jeff emrick used d19s for lots of stuff and you know the toms um overheads and then which seemed to me, in in my mind, they are, are like a fifty-seven of the day. They're just utility mic. It's just there, and then for the snare drum, which previously wasn't even mic'd up, in you know in the earlier years, they're using the Neumann KM fifty-six, which suddenly seems like a big step up. Do you know? Do you have any idea why or what benefits it it has to to be using such a and it like a you know, quite a high-end mic when they don't seem to to be using high-end mics on much of the other drums. That's a good question. I don't. I I. So when Jeff started working with the Beatles, I think he was like twenty or twenty-one, and he'd been a mastering engineer. He was first a tape op, and then he went into mastering. And I'd be curious. I mean, it's too bad he's not around, but. You know, I've talked to him a couple times, and um, I'd always be interested to know, like, well, who told you to do that? Because, you know, before him, it was Smith. Smith used two mics, and that was it. And it was the the kick drum mic, the D20, and the D19. But I, my educated, uneducated or educated opinion on that would be, from my experience recording in a room live with other people um they had so many great mics at abbey road they had c12s they had 67s they had 47s 48s 
could have gotten a pretty incredible drums down with those mics. Um, but I think the fact that they were all playing together in the same room, they really liked the sound of the D19. They've been using it on drums since 62, or uh, not 62, like 64. They started using the D19. Um, and I think, who knows, maybe he did toss up some other mics and they tried something and then the bleed was so bad from the guitar amps near the near the drums and all that that they just said, screw it, let's just use use what we've always used and and that's one reason i think that they you see a lot of pictures of the tom mics under the toms was because they were trying to get away from cymbal bleed um and i as far as what's on the snare i think also um that microphone's unique because you could put a cam 54 up but a 54 is only going to give you one pattern um, the fact that you could turn the 56 into a figure eight pattern means that you could use that pattern to cancel out stuff like hi-hat or kick drum, or you could use it to include the kick drum in the snare mic. So I honestly don't know who, you know, suggested those mics or if he came up with it on his own, but I'm going to say, I would guess as having recorded a lot of people uh, in live situations in a studio, um, what an issue bleed can be to a recording that that was probably where his mind was because they were all recording together. Um, I don't think you see any situation where the drums were a, a drum part was overdubbed, except, you know, like a snare overdub, but th there was never Ringo playing his drums alone to some track or or them to him and vice versa like i so i think it was bleed and they are like 57s but um they're better because they're german <laughs> you know <laughs> not german uh austrian or whoever makes akg but they're uh very for a 57 like mike they have a very nice top end like a condenser in a way so i think that's why it was appealing as well is because yeah it is a kind of a workhorse mic but it has a beautiful top end that you can't really get out of any other dynamic mic that i've heard to be honest yeah i think um I, I th it seems to make sense in terms of miking the toms from underneath about the bleed i know you mentioned it on the the video of the in the course too and I, I don't know i don't you you might know whether anybody else was close miking toms around that time or whether they were just using overheads i don't but know it, i think you go look at the stones around that era and i'd say no because if they were working with andy or glenn johns it was the two mics and a kick and a snare pretty much you do see american American uh, miking the toms uh, a little bit, but they wouldn't know that. Um, but yeah, I come to think of it, I'd have to look into that. But I, I, I don't know a lot of. Um, I mean, okay, let's talk about the Who. I guarantee you, they were miking some toms because I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, Tommy. I mean, that that had to have had some mics on the on the tom. <laughs> but yeah, I would say that they were kind of. Um, I would say for starting that in 66 that that was a uh that was definitely a 
a move forward. Yeah, you're right. I, 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 that's a really good point. I think if you were to go from not having ever mic'd up toms before, um, there was no precedent before that. So it seems quite obvious to mic it from underneath because that's where the, it's called the resonant head. You know, that's where the, the sound resonates from. And we're always trying to mic stuff up at the point where the sound comes out. And it does seem, if you, if you didn't know, that it seems like quite an obvious thing to do. But now, you know, I every recording I've ever done since I was, uh, since I ever started doing it, you record the toms from over the top. And because that's just the way everyone does it. And I, yeah, it does seem quite obvious now. Well, you do get the attack from miking the top of a tom and that's nice. Yeah. I don't know don't know whether they'll have even trialed it going from from over the top. Another thing that's really interesting and and from the episode that people will have heard um already on this podcast with Ken Scott talking about the EQ boosting. Um I don't know whether the EQ boosting was the EQs on those desks was less powerful, but Ken mentioned that um, John Lennon used to come into the studio and it was just like a standard thing that he'd be like, right, EQ up full, please. And it just happened every session that he he just said it as a, you know, of course we need to have the EQ up full. And uh, that seems, I think if you did that with modern plugins, for instance, that it would just sound terrible but the yeah maybe they were more subtle on the desks at you know on the the desks at abbey road i think they were um not uh i would say that that technology so those eqs were passive eqs so they were completely passive if you took them out of the desk there was no power there were no no way to plug them in. So the only way they worked was um, when you put them into the desk, you lost about 20 dB of gain. And so you had to have an amp after them to, to uh, make up the gain. So um, that's part of the design. There's a lot to be said about that. And there are some mastering guys, like there's very famous, some of the most famous in the world mastering guys that still use passive EQs because um it is so musical and untouched so yeah uh you're probably right that the you know even if it says you're boosting 10 db you probably are but you're probably boosting it in a different way or a different shape than you might if it were a more modern eq um you know with modern eqs the sky's the limit like there's no end to possibilities and um i think i think what they were also experiencing was uh they were listening to a lot of records coming from america and other and even from their peers in england as well and they're hearing things that and comparing what they did you know at the end of the day they take home an acetate and listen to it and then they go put on you know a a motown record or a, a stevie wonder record and they're saying well you know God, the vocal or the the low end is so incredible, and uh, you know I think being around those desks, I figured out like if they want it to sound better, 
Um, I think the EQ on those desks kind of work like a guitar amp. Like, uh, you know, if you turn the EQs both up on the guitar amp, it doesn't necessarily sound worse. It just kind of makes it louder. So I think there's something to that, you know. That's quite an interesting comparison, uh, the guitar amp comparison. I hadn't thought of it like that, but that that seems fair. Um, another thing that gets overlooked, I think, uh, that you mentioned in the course is the I think it might not even be the course, it might be in one of the videos that you made, is the drum sound being influenced by the vocal mic that was just set up in the room. And there's so much air there, and you don't... That's not something that we get... Um, it, it seems... Trying to get my words in the right order. It seems like such a huge factor that, that we just need to talk about more, that the drum sound will have been going into that vocal mic and of course it's going to sound the way it sounds because of that and uh it's not just two mics really is it it would be it, it has a room mic as well you know as a room mic and then it has um chamber sometimes and the you know the mics on the guitar amps maybe get a little bit of drums but yeah the the whole thing where you pan the drums off with two mics and they're you know bounced down to one channel and then you got two guys singing on another mic that's going through the console and has a limiter on it and so when they're not singing on that mic the sound opens up and it breathes and you can hear the drums especially on the early stuff a lot like you can hear um you know like i think it's uh well i want to be your man a special case because ringo was singing that live but there's a couple, you know, like even though I want to hold your hand, like if you listen to that, when the vocals come in, you hear you hear that room sound of the drums basically cut in half because the vocal takes over the limiter and it takes over that the majority of that channel. And when they're not singing, it goes back up. And I think that's a really important part of the drum sound early on. And you hear it too. I mean, you hear it... Um, I would say revolver you don't hear it as much because they were in a much smaller room but i think you definitely hear it on everything else they did um even like come together i mean he recut that vocal though but you you can hear on the early takes um the bleed because i think come together was done in three um you can hear the bleed of the guitar amps into the drum the drums into the guitar amps and the you know drum vice versa and that is so much of the sound, so much of the bass sound on Come Together is the bleed of the bass into the other mics. And <laughs> it's I have the stems of it, and it's crazy how much bass is going into everything. And that's really, it's incredible how much bleed is part of their sound, for sure. How much does um, your sort of Beatles knowledge inform your mixing and sort of... Uh, engineering decisions now in records you're working on currently i would say you know i'm not putting abbey road plugins on everything but i think as far as the most important things to me because when we recorded at my studio um very very commonly it's live so that means we're gonna get five six seven people all playing together and we want it to sound great we want separation to be good so, yeah, I use my knowledge of separation a lot um, because I know that those Beatles records, 
um, have a lot of bleed and they sound good. So I have a good reference point. I would say that that kind of thing um, comes in very handy. And so does vocal tone and guitar sounds and just kind of like, you know, knowing when somebody wants to put a 12 string on something that we put it through an AC 30 and compress it, that that's a really good sound. Um, I'd say that a, so much of that knowledge, especially composition of, as far as like a, uh, how a production or how like a song is produced or, um, you know, uh, instrument instrumentation decisions, that kind of thing, what works in the mix, what, what doesn't work together? What kind of vocal harmonies work? Like, yeah, I'd say musically it influences me more than technically, but yeah, I use a, a lot of that technical stuff is just kind of in my mind and has been for years. And I kind of apply every situation I apply to, you know, basically get the best result I can out of something. And that's kind of, that's definitely part of it for sure. Um, what do you think of a so it's very slightly changing subject here but what do you think of those abbey road plugins um i think they're good i i think that i actually do use those when i mix i mean i said i didn't but i i don't put them on everything like when i'm doing a beatles video i use the um i use the red desk plugin a lot for eq um i love it on electric guitars and i love it on vocals it does something really awesome to a vocal it's like literally my favorite vocal setting on that thing is um the pop eq plus two treble minus one bass and that's like you know i use other stuff but that adds such a nice that where that eq sits the high end part of that eq is in the timber the higher timber, the mid, the higher mid range of the voice. And it's a really nice sound. Um, and I use that a lot. I use the J 37 a lot, the tape emulator. I use that on guitars to soften digital signals. Um, I use that a lot. I use ADT as well. Um, it's a really incredible vocal effect. Um, and, the TG as well. I use the TG stuff. I do use them, yeah. I mean, I was just mixing something last night, and gee, I, I I'd say I'd say half my tracks had an Abbey Road uh, related plugin on them. Yes, I, I I love them. I think they're really musical, and they're great people. Like I, I have a pretty good relationship with the Waves guys, and um, they're always trying to put something out there for people that really force them to create. Like they just released these really great um, distortion and overdrive plugins that went way out of the box. They basically took the idea for a couple popular distortion pedals and then they integrated um basically like puzzles inside of them, like brain puzzles for you to figure out a way to use them musically on things like vocals or drums. And they have all these really unique features that no distortion pedal has and uh, will never have, but they're specifically for the recording and mixing platform. 
And when they release stuff like that, as opposed to like a piece of gear, which is great. I love the gear stuff, obviously. Um, it really tells me a lot about a company that's trying to incite creativity and inspire people that maybe don't have access to a, a large studio um, to create and make something interesting and original from home. And I, I love that company for that reason. And some of these Abbey Road plugins as well, like especially the ADT, um, the Chambers even. Like I use the Chambers a bit. I actually, that's my favorite snare reverb. Like I, it's always sitting somewhere and I do it in mono too. Like I'll, you know, uh, I don't want to say that's my favorite snare reverb. It is right now this week. <laughs> but I, I use it a lot. I definitely do. And I think, um, I think if you're listening and you're um, conflicted about buying some plugins, and maybe you have a little bit of money, even though none of us are working, Waves always does these great sales. And like right now, I think so much of their stuff's more than half off. The number I'm going to give you two plugins that you have to own. It's gonna the abbey road chambers okay three plugins and that's it these are my <laughs> these are my top favorite waves abbey road plugins and i will take these to my grave number one the j37 that's my favorite tape delay it's my favorite tape saturation plugin um i use some of the uad stuff which i actually love as well but if i want to make something really dirty and gnarly um or if I want to take a, an edge off of something, the J37 is my go-to. It's my go-to for slapback because to me it sounds like those records. And that's kind of, you know, there are so many great slapback plugins out there um, or delay tape delay emulators. And I use those as well. But I go to the J, if, if somebody says, hey, can you put a slapback on that vocal? I go straight for the J37. Like I don't even think about it. I always try it first. The next one, uh, the Abbey Road Chambers, incredible, um, very unique, nothing like it out there. Um, I can, I think I feel like I've maybe put some settings up on one of my YouTube videos for the early settings. Um, that thing rocks. And then last but not least, my third favorite would be the ADT because you can use it for so many things. I've done it on vocals. Done it on guitar. I've put it on pianos and stereo and done flange. I've taken entire sections of songs and done a slow, sludgy flange, like, you know, Led Zeppelin style through the ADT plugin. Um, it has so many options. And I would, those would be my top three favorite. Not that you asked, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff. I'm, I know on the um, on one of the videos where you put Abbey Road Chambers on uh, to, I think it was on the drum bus maybe, or or just on, I can't remember what it was on, but as soon as it it went on there, it was just like, that's it. That that's, sounds incredible. <laughs> it just, you can tell, I think it's so, some reverbs just sound awful, and then you can suddenly, you whatever whatever it was there just sounded amazing and i haven't i don't own that yet but there's something well, probably that snare overdub on bathroom window that whap that was probably what because that was I, I think it was yeah i think it was you're right because we couldn't figure out what it was we thought it was a wood block but it turns out that it was a snare he cued through the return of that thing um and i think the cool thing that they did and this is why i love waves 
was instead of just putting the chamber on there, they put the whole chain. They put the um, they put the cue that they used. They put the uh, seed, which is the the tape delay, uh, the pre delay that they used. They put the filters, everything. So it's the whole package. I love that plugin. You you got to buy it, especially because I think that's on. I think it's on sale. It's just such a great plug. Everything's always on sale at Waves. <laughs> it's the greatest company ever for sales. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I mean, I could I could literally talk to you forever, but if I I've, I've got, got a few a few uh, like small small questions that I uh, one one's not a question for for everybody, but uh, a couple of them are like easy questions. So if um, I know you've just given you the top three these plugins that you think everyone should own. But if you were to give one piece of advice for people trying to make 60s sounding music at home, what do you think it, what would it be? Um, I would say watch my videos with a grain. Of, <laughs> well, I would say take it with a grain of salt because n- not everyone is in my position. I'm really lucky to have this room and to have those mics and that gear. But I could make a 60s sounding recording in a garage with a couple of 57s, like no problem. I would say the reason that is is because I would use my ears before my eyes. I would definitely listen to what you want and get it however you can. You know, if it's mic placement on your amp, if it's um, on your drums, if you if, even if it's using that one overhead mic and moving it down a foot or moving it back a foot um, or messing with your amplifier or trying a different kind of guitar string, like so many of the those details that you have to use your ears for, I think that's the most important part of getting those sounds. And, and I've been doing that since I was a kid and I had no, I'd had crappy gear. I had like, a, a, like a 90s uh, starter Ludwig Ludwig kit, and I don't even think I had a I had like a radio sh- couple of Radio Shack mics, and I still managed to get pretty good sounding Beatles recordings at that age. Maybe I'll dig one up and send it to you, and you can play some of it on your podcast. Me at 15, yes. just to let you hear that even at 15 with crappy mics, like I don't think. I had no condenser mics. I had none. They were all dynamic mics. And what I did was I listened to the recordings and did my best with what I had to make them sound the same. So that's, I would say take my videos with a grain of salt as far as the gear goes, because when it all is said and done, it's really your ears. So use your ears. I th- I think that's really sound. And I, again, I, I'll, uh, I've referenced this a couple of times in other episodes that uh, one of the things Ken Scott said some stuff very similar to that um, that microphones don't matter and preamps don't matter and f- all of that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is that you're playing it right and you're you've got you, what the instrument you're playing is right and that's it. That that's the top things to get right. Um, so I think that's good advice to take it with a grain of salt because obviously those having great gear does inform the sound to a degree, but not as much, nowhere near as much as uh, as the way you play things and and what you use your ears for essentially. 
Yeah, the gear's 10% of it. Like, everything else is you. Because at the end of the day, it's just you and your group or the group you're recording. That's it. Like, that's, you know, you're... That, Ken's, I mean, Ken's a man that's done hundreds of records. I've done, I mean, he's done thousands probably at this point. I've, I've not done as many records as Ken Scott, but I've been making records for almost 15 years. And that's one thing you do learn is, you know, you find yourself in situations where um, maybe things don't work out or things are broken or you can't access uh, a, a thing that you need to do something. But in the, in the studio business and, and being in a fast-paced environment where you have to get something done, they have to perform, you got to get it in a take. You don't have time to fiddle around. Like You grab whatever's nearest to them and stick it in front of them and go because you don't have the luxury of like sitting down for two hours and trying to figure out what the best microphone preamp combo is. Like that's super <laughs> unrealistic in the real world. It's nice to think about and it's nice to, you know, consider. And that's why we have a console. So we don't have to think about that. We know the console is going to sound good. And, um, it's kind of like, well, shit, you know, this record's going to fail because I didn't use a tube mic on the acoustic guitar. No, it's it's not has it's so pointless. You literally <laughs> it's you know when you're dealing with artists and and producers and people that want things, they hire you to get a great sounding record and for you to be able to deal with whatever comes your way in a timely manner and to get it down without thinking about without them having to think about it. They don't want to know what you're doing. I mean, maybe sometimes they have an opinion on, well, you know, I like to use ribbons on the piano. But nine times out of ten, nine times out of ten, you have to make a quick decision and stick with it. And that's that's what I can tell people. Um, it's it is definitely your ears. I uh, I love that advice. I I will never tire of hearing it. It's it's inspiring advice. I think. Um, so <laughs> I'm the complete flip side of that. What's your <laughs> I feel stupid asking this question now that we've just been we've just talked about that. But what's your desert island piece of gear? It could be a it could be gear, it could be a microphone, it could be an instrument. It's a anything you want, but if you had to take one thing from the studio to the desert island with you, what would it be? Ah, uh, see that's tough because Okay. Can we do two answers? Okay, yeah. Let's do a gear answer. All right. Okay. Go for it. And then let's do a guitar answer because those are separate for me. Okay. All right. That's a, that's a, that sounds fine. I'll allow it. Yeah. Guitar, my 62 Casino, which is like McCartney's. It's not pretty. It's really beat up. That That's it. That, I would take that. And then gear-wise, my API console. Like I can do anything with that console. It's <laughs> the best sounding console in the world to me. You know, it's just so, it sounds so good. <laughs> <laughs> it feels a bit like a cheat answer, having a, a huge console that you can take with you because you've got everything you ever need just right there. Pretty much. Yeah, I could record it. I mean, you know, I could make bugs sound good on a recording with that. <laughs> I could quite, I'd be interested to hear it. Okay, last question, and it's a really obvious question. Uh, what's your, what's, so for whichever reasons you would like to say, what's your favorite Beatles recording? Hmm. Um, Revolver is my favorite album because um, 
I grew up on the early albums, and that was the first. Well, my dad had the wide album, so that's not true. So I had the wide out. Al- we had the wide album, the early albums, Rubber Soul. But I didn't hear Revolver until I was a teenager, and that record, I don't, I don't think I stopped listening to it for an entire year, because it had so many new sounds and and different sounds on it, and it was so dry too. Like that's a really dry album for the Beatles. And I, you know, I didn't realize at the time that that was Jeff Emmerich's first record, but that record made a big impression on me and still does. And um, maybe we'll do like an And Your Bird Can Sing video. I'm trying to get my friend Brendan to agree to do Rain with me mm-hmm. because the drum part is so epic and uh, and so is the guitar part as well. So we might, we might look into that uh, and do that and do it on tape where they actually recorded it in the key of A and then slowed it down between A and uh, A and G sharp, I think. Um, but yeah, Revolver. And Rain is not on Revolver, but it was recorded right before it in the same era. It's a That's a great answer. Well, if, if Brenda doesn't want to come and play drums on it, I'll fly out and come and do it for you. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been, um, I, I genuinely feel like I could just chew your ear off for hours. So I, I'll let you get back to your family. And uh, it's been lovely to chat. Oh, you too, man. It was a joy talking to you. So there we have it, Clay Blair. Um, and uh, as usual, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, Clay's such a lovely human being. Um, and was so generous with his time and his information and knowledge. Um, and uh, at times was a bit more practical, um, that conversation, than uh, some other previous conversations have been in terms of the advice. So I, I hope you have found that interesting. Um, if you're interested in checking out some of the covers that Clay does, the re-recordings, um, you can look at Boulevard Recordings' YouTube channel. Um, I'll link it in the show notes for this, but if you just search Boulevard Recording YouTube um, on Google, it comes up um, as the first result. Um, So there we go. Uh, Next week, we are chatting to Joe Kane, um, who is the person that I routinely thank and will thank again. So thanks, Joe, um, for helping me make the intro and outro music for this um, podcast. Joe is a prolific songwriter, And um, I've been working with him for a few years now, um, playing drums for him. And he's such a wonderful spirit. Um, And his approach to creativity and making music is fascinating and inspiring. And Joe manages to get a really quintessential 60s sound out of a lot of the um, songs that he works on. Um, Not just 60s, 70s as well. Um, And doesn't use expensive gear he's got some really good tips on um inexpensive gear that gets a great sound and um, if you want to listen to any of his stuff beforehand you can find um joe's stuff at uh, joe kane well, that's k-a-n-e um radiophonic tuck shop it's called um, he's got some stuff on spotify yeah so that's coming in a fortnight's time um as usual if you'd like to get into contact with me um my email address is joe at all you need is drums.com or you can go to the website all you need is drums.com um for those of you that are interested in the isolated drum stems that i recreate every fortnight 
Um, I now have an archive up on allyouneedisjobs.com uh, of all the past ones I can, I've can i done, um, and I've got plenty more coming, so look out for those. Um, before I finish, I just want to say a big thank you to David Henshaw, who provides the beautiful artwork to this podcast every fortnight, um, and I will see you in a fortnight's time. Thanks for listening, and goodbye! Goodbye!